Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. It's Wednesday, you know what that means. Back in the studio. Who's this podcast for? My name is Nate. <clears throat> Hope you're all having a good um, day to start there, a good week. Hope you had a good first month of the year. Mine was pretty eventful. Don't want to jinx anything, but some pretty good opportunities might be coming up here soon. Uh, hopefully, uh, Lord willing, if it's in his plans for me. <clears throat> we'll see. Uh, but like I always say, utilize your gifts so that they can work for you so that you don't have to uh, feel like your days are sort of want to use. Feel like your days are not your own to where everything that you do is informing your passions or your gifts. And we all have gifts uh, granted to you by the most high and use those. And I'm, that's what I'm trying to do. I think I found mine. <clears throat> And uh, hopefully it bears fruit. We shall see soon. But it's been a great first month of the year. Very slow. It's moved by very slowly as we sit here on the last day of the month. February's coming up, Valentine's Day, all that stuff. And we'll be in spring before you know it. So it's been a great winter, though. A lot of snow, a lot of cold, a lot of rain. I always love it. And then as it's starting to end, I always look forward to the to the sunny days and those summer nights. It's going to be very fun. So, anyway, I hope you're all doing well. I hope you're all having a good day. Today, we have many books to cover. I've been in a book buying binge, alliteration uh, right there. Uh, a lot of books I want to discuss. Maybe even read a bit of one of them, <clears throat> or a few of them. Uh, also, over the weekend, we went and saw the 85th anniversary of Wizard of Oz in theaters. And that's what I'm going to start first. But before we get to that, local script man who we talked, who we introduced a few weeks back. He put out a new video a few days ago called Story Logic Does Not Equal Real Logic. And uh, it's about three minutes long. We're going to look at that. We're going to look at that. And then we're going to dive into maybe another one here is a screenwriter's hot takes on productivity. Stop consuming media is the title, which I agree with. So we're going to look into that. Uh, Maybe pacing isn't real. The illusion of bad pacing. Why your writing feels off. We got a few things we might dive in on local script, man. Actually, to see, have I um, looked into his stuff like this before? I know I've watched one video of his on the channel. I don't like the repeat videos, but sometimes I forget what I've watched. Uh, let's see here. Uh, da, 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 da. Looking up, looking up, looking up, looking up. Okay, so no, it was January 17th when we introduced Local Script Man to the podcast. So, and it was only one video, so we have plenty to dive into with him. So, that's good. So, yeah. But first, uh, Wizard of Oz. I'm not going to do a review of Wizard of Oz. You know Wizard of Oz, right? Uh, I don't need to tell you anything about it. It's one of the more famous movies of all time. <clears throat> But since we're here and it's what we do, I'll go ahead and read through a little bit of it. We're off to see the wizard, the wonderful Wizard of Oz. Young Dorothy finds herself in a magical world where she makes friends with the lion, the scarecrow, and the tin man as they make their way along the yellow brick road to talk with the wizard and ask for the things they miss most in their lives. The Wicked Witch of the West is the only thing that could stop them. And it starred Judy Garland, Ray Bolger, Jack Haley, Burt Lahr, Frank Morgan, Margaret Hamilton, Billy Burke, Clara Blandick. Charlie Grapewin, and others. Uh, it's Wizard of Oz. What can I say? The one thing I will say about this movie that I didn't notice or didn't realize is that um, <clears throat> I didn't know, and I have seen this movie before. At least I'm sure I have because I feel like that's a movie we've all seen before, even if you can't pinpoint exactly where you saw it or when. You know, you had to be younger, probably in school or something. But I didn't realize that there's a whole plot of point of this movie where Dorothy is kidnapped by the Wicked Witch of the West, and then the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, <laughs> and the Lion have to go rescue her, and they dress up as guards, and there's this whole castle thing. I didn't know. I I don't know if I just put it out of my memory or what. It has been a long time since I've seen it, but I didn't think that that was in there at all, and it was very interesting to see because it it just caught me off guard. Like wow, I didn't know that that, that this happens. Um, an hour and 50 minutes, um, 
bit longer than maybe I assumed. I don't know. I thought it'd be an hour and a half, but an hour and 50 minutes um, when she opens the door and it goes from the like sepia tone, old school to that vibrant uh, technicolor, whatever it was shot in. It is beautiful and the songs are timeless and, you know, it's Wizard of Oz. What can I say? It was a good experience. It was a deep crowd. A lot of people were there They and they clapped and stuff and, you know, it was just a fun time. I just, uh, the, the only thing I just, I didn't know was that whole point about Dorothy being kidnapped and them coming to save her. I, I was like, wow, that's in this? I had no idea. So, but that's the Wizard of Oz. I don't have much to say. It's a bona fide classic from a time when the studios were uh, rocking. A lot of people say that that 1930s time period, that late 30s, early 40s is when Hollywood was at its apex, you know, with Gone with the Wind and movies like that. In the same year, I believe, with Wizard of Oz and Grapes of Wrath was around that time. And that's when Hollywood was just, you know, at its at its apex when they introduced sound and they had sound for a while, about 10 years or so maybe. So they kind of knew how to use it now and all that kind of stuff. Uh, a lot of people say when um, Andrew Clavin spoke about this, when your art or your art medium, uh, when celebrating the most artistic works, but at the same time, those works are also the most commercial works. That's when your medium and your business is at its strength, at its best. When Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz and the movies like that are as artistically, um, you know, f- fulfilling, but are also commercially viable and they're winning the Oscars. That's when you know it's at its apex, as opposed to now and maybe uh, for, for the past four, four or five years, it's been movies that not a lot of people have seen winning Oscars. And that has gone on longer than that. Uh, you know, Marty was a very small movie in the 50s and it won Best Picture. So it's been around, it's been happening longer than that. But, you know, it just kind of says something about the times as well. And if I sound sick, it's because I am. So just try to bear with me and my voice. But now let's get to the books. Uh, I went to the mailbox this morning before I did this, before I, I, I did this pod to get one because it was in the mail. Uh, but the other three I had here already. And we'll just go through them. The first one is called John York Into the Woods, a five-act journey into story. It says a marvelous analysis of screenwriting and with any luck should help a great many people achieve their dreams. Julian Fellows, creative Downton Abbey. And this is just a book from John York who uh, basically delves into his his psychosis, his analysis of screenwriting. It says the revolutionary guide to dramatic writing, playwriting, and storytelling whether you're writing The Next Chinatown, Breaking Bad, or Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. The idea of Into the Woods is not to supplant works by Aristotle, Lagos, Egri, Robert McKee, David Mamet, or any other writers of screenwriting, playwriting, and storytelling, but to pick up on their cues and take the reader on a historical, philosophical, scientific, and physiological or psychological journey to the heart of all storytelling. And this exciting and wholly original book, John York, not only shows that there is a truly unifying shape the narrative one that echoes the great fairy tale journey into the woods and one like any great art that comes from deep within he explains why too with examples ranging from the godfather to true detective to madman to macbeth and fairy tales to forby delson the killing york utilizes shakespearean five-act structure as a key to analyzing all storytelling and all narrative forms from film and television to theater and novel writing a big step from the usual three-act approach approach I think this book has, I haven't read it all the way yet, but I think it has a lot of great valuable information, as most of these books do, and they have their place. Uh, I wanted to pick a little bit of this, just kind of dive into it just a touch. Here's one uh, chapter, chapter nine, called Scenes, and it starts with the quote, it says, drama is life with the door bits cut out. That's from Alfred Hitchcock. I just want to read a quick little excerpt. <clears throat> Oops, sorry about that. I'm kicking everything. This section is called Turning Points. It says, every scene has a turning point. For one simple reason, scenes exist because they have a turning point. It is why a writer selects them to tell their story. Turning points are the units of change, the key moments from a character's life. 
and since all dramatic structures built on the chassis of change, complete change as we've seen, is commonly referred to as a dramatic arc. But just as stories are made from acts and acts are built from scenes, so each of these units represents a different kind of change. Stories as a whole illustrate complete change. Acts show major change or scenes minor, individual moments. It's in the latter, the single cells of the organism, that a writer's effort is concentrated for each is a unit of change. Select and build these units correctly and you will create a plausible, thrilling, moving work that is portraying a tiny fraction of life captures the essence of its whole. <clears throat> Just a small little piece from this book and it's full of things like that. Where it goes through Act 1, Act 5. Here's a piece that says putting it all together. This is uh, Chapter 10. It talks about the social network. So Act 1, Mark is done by Erica. Act um, uh, 2, works on Face Mash, Endless Eduardo. 3, Winklevoss twins invite Mark to join them. Act 5, Winklevoss twins sue Mark, works on Facebook, sacks Eduardo, tries to make friends with Erica. It says, they are mirror images. So what happens in Act 1 mirrors Act 5. And he says, one of the most striking features of the structure, however, is a very clear and direct relationship between the first and last X. So everything is a mirror. I won't delve too long, but John York's Into the Woods is a read that I can't wait to really dive into. My second book and two books are about one person. So this lets you know how great this guy is. Uh, Double Solitaire, the films of Charles Brackett and Billy Wilder by Donald Brackett. I believe it's his grandson of uh, Charles Brackett. Charles Brackett was a screenwriter who worked with Billy Wilder for the, for the first uh, many years of their careers. Uh before they separated and went off into their own things. But you know how I feel about Billy Water. We've done whole episodes on Billy Water. He's, I think he might be the best ever. Many um, movies like The Apartment and Something Like It Hot and Ace in the Hole and Sunset Boulevard, Stalag 17, The Lost Weekend, uh, Seven Year Itch. Um, I'm sure I'm missing some. Uh, Double Indemnity. A witness of the prosecution, you know, on and so forth. It says from Double Solitaire. After 1939, Hollywood began to identify them together in print as the integrated structural unit of Brackett and Wilder. Despite how cozy the epithet sounds, however, the working method was anything but. Wilder was commonly seen stomping around their shared office, waving and whacking his riding crop, a gesture that both mystified and sometimes unnerved the more sedate Brackett. Charlie would take in hand the actual physical act of writing in longhand during their blistering sessions, jotting out their scripts on yellow legal pads. The writing pair developed over time a kind of passive-aggressive technique, which is common to many artistic partnerships. Wilder seemed to find it difficult to work if, if he had been praised, perhaps a nod to his fondness for combative approaches, so they tended to schedule meetings with executives in the late afternoon. Another strategy, since they were very sensitive to judgments in general, and the bosses had a habit of making their writing, of changing their writing, as if they knew what they were doing was to write as long into the night as possible in order to discourage any rewriting of their material in the face of tight studio deadlines. And this is the boiling creative cauldron, the hotly contested territorial division out of which Bracken and Wilder managed, against all odds, to pull off the supreme coup of their shared screenplays, and later on, the disciplined division of labor necessary to produce and direct their own films once they got tired of selling their skills to others. So basically, this is the story of uh, Billy Wilder and Charlie Hackett as a writing duo. Before Hitchcock and Herman, before Herzog and Kinski, there was Charles Brackett and Billy Wilder. Despite their shared nickname, writer-producer Charles Brackett and writer-director Billy Wilder were not, in fact, the happiest couple in Hollywood. Actually, they disliked each other intensely, even as they collaborated on some of the most iconic films of Hollywood's golden age, including Sunset Boulevard, The, Lo the Lost Weekend, and The Foreign Affair. Just how two men have found each other so irritating could together make such endearing contributions to cinematic history is the subject of Double Solitaire, a joint biography of a fascinating and explosive creative collaboration. While making their mark on genres ranging from film noir to screwball comedy, they achieved an almost inexplicable alchemy that highlights the paradoxical nature of shared genius. Author Donald Brackett, whose great-great-grandfather was Charles Brackett's cousin, delves into family lore, correspondence, contemporary media reports, and all other manner of historical records to reconstruct the strange magic of Bracken and Wilder's combustible partnership, showing how their creative tension yielded one classic film after another, and how their entrepreneurial drive pushed against the constraints of the studio system, anticipating the independent producer models of today. 
That's double solitaire. Another one I can't wait to read. Now, <clears throat> we move on to the third book. The Conversations, Walter Murch and the Art of Editing Film by Michael Ondaatje. And it has a quote, should be required reading for anyone working in film. John Borman, Los Angeles Times Book Review. Uh, it says, from one of our most celebrated novelists, here are Michael Ondaatje's conversations with the film and sound editor, Walter Murch. Their exchange reveals behind-the-scenes glimpses of the directors Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, Philip Kaufman, Anthony Minghella, and Fred Zinnemann, an inside talk on how a film is put together and how editing differs in film and writing. Equally at ease talking about films, music, medieval architecture, or quantum physics, Murch has worked on such iconic films as The Reconstructed Touch of Evil, the Godfather 1, 2, and 3, Apocalypse Now, The Conversation, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, and The English Patient. Walter Murch, a film and sound editor, has won three Academy Awards. He lives outside San Francisco. This is a sublime example of how to produce a fearsomely intelligent book about the aesthetics of filmmaking, set the Sunday Times in London. Marvelous, fascinating insights into the technical and formal aspects of filmmaking, but also a pleasure to read with the same irresistible appeal as any backstage expose. The most serious, exhaustive, and entertaining discourse with a master film worker since Truffaut Hitchcock, or Truffaut Hitchcock. This is from Richard Hale from Book Form. So this is just a book um, highlighting the conversation that Walter Murch had with Michael Ondaatje about editing some of the best movies of all time, like The Godfather and the Conversation, and uh, and, and, and working with directors like Francis Ford Coppola and Fred Zinnemann, who is a master of the Golden Age era, amongst others. And it has many pictures of him on set. He uh, he did Apocalypse Now and all the other ones I named. Uh, the English Patient. Uh, yeah, he, he's just a he's renowned as one of the better editors of all time. And this is just a book, uh, basically highlighting his process and how he worked with these guys. I can't wait to dive into this one as well. I didn't know much about Walter Murch until recently, but but the process of editing is so fascinating to me. I can't wait to figure out how a legend edited all those great movies. And last but not least, the one I got out the mail today to be able to talk about it on this pod is Conversations with Wilder. The first serious investigation in print of Wilder's 70-year career as a filmmaker in which the subject was an elusive and evasive co-conspirator it is this cat and mouse context that makes conversation with Wilder so wonderful. John Gregory Dune, the New Yorker. This is Cameron Crowe's book. At the time of this, I think it was like 1998, he was making Almost Famous. He's a director and a writer himself. And he sat down with Wilder and they made this book, Conversations with Wilder, uh, by Cameron Crowe. I'll read you a little bit on the back. Here in a Q&A format, a not the Truffaut's unforgettable Hitchcock, Billy Wilder, Hollywood's legendary writer-director, talks to Cameron Crowe, one of today's best-known writer-directors, about screenwriting and camera work, set design and the stars, his peers in their movies, the old studio system, and filmmaking today. And here are his behind-the-scenes recollections from the sets of Double Indemnity, Sunset Boulevard, Love in the Afternoon, Some Like It Hot, and The Apartment, among many others. The same dry wit, lack of sentimentality, tough-minded romanticism, and elegance that, that, that are the hallmarks of Wilder's films, Make this book a classic of Hollywood history and lore. Cameron Crowe was an associate editor and frequent contributor to Rolling Stone. In 1979, he wrote the book Fast Times at Rich High, and later adapted it as a screenplay. He wrote and directed Say Anything, Singles, the Academy Award-winning Jerry Maguire, Almost Famous, for which he won an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay, and most recently, Vanilla Sky. He lives in Los Angeles and Seattle. Um... Says a conversation with Wilder is one of the best Hollywood portraits ever written and reveals a cagey, puckish, and a stranger man who's just as entertaining as some of the great characters he put on screen by Edward Guthman, San Francisco Examiner. Ken McCrow proves that the Wilder touch is a thing in the world now, that the elegant unpleasantness of his better movies has become vastly cool in the minds of yet another generation. Andrew O'Hagan, New York Review of Books. Crow has captured the master's distinctive voice. Each page is like having another sip of champagne. John Powers from Vogue. And finally, the wilder Crow brings to us is dapper and patient, a spontaneous comedic genius in private conversation, but mostly conversation with Wilder is devoted to fascinating and detailed discussions of the work, with Wilder dispensing wise little jewels that add up to an inspired manual 
on how to write and direct the film. Sarah Kerr, New York Times book review. I want to look through this. It is so detailed and has so much to offer, um, I think, personally, uh, being such a big fan of Billy Wilder. And uh, just so many tidbits into his movies, a little bit on his process, how he worked with other people. I think it's fascinating. And there was one little piece I wanted to read because I thought it was key without looking through it earlier. Okay, here it is. Uh, Cameron Crowe asked him, I think they were talking about the apartment, maybe a witness for the prosecution. He said, a couple of years ago, I heard a rumor that you finished a new screenplay. And this is what Billy Wilder said. No, I had many, many runs on a typewriter, but it all fizzled out. Since Diamond died, speaking of IAL Diamond, his uh, writing collaborator, since Diamond died, there is nothing really that is worth talking about. I'm used to the old studio system. I never wrote anything on spec. I agreed to make one, two or three pictures, and then I have a little wit behind me. It's now a world I don't know, a new world without any heads of a studio. You know, anybody could laugh about Mr. Goldwyn, but there was somebody there, Selznick Thalberg, Thalberg, who never had his name on the screen. I think this part is uh is pretty it's pretty heartbreaking where he says, um, since Diamond died, there is nothing really that is worth talking about. And that he's used to the old studio system by nineteen ninety eight, that would have been long gone and it was much more of a free willing world. There's much more of a wild, wild west kind of thing where you just kinda of get in where you fit in. Because I'm used to the old studio system. I never wrote anything on spec. I agree to make two or three pictures. And then I have a little wit behind me. So he's used to that kind of grind. Like, we're going to put you down for three movies and you're going to make them go, 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 go. And somebody's always in your ear. And now it's, it's kind of different. You're just kind of out there on your own. And he says, um, it's now a world I don't know. A new world without any heads of a studio. You know, anybody could laugh about Mr. Goldwyn. Talking about um, Metro Goldwyn and Mayor of MGM. But there was somebody there, Selznick, Thalberg. Thalberg, who never had his name on screen. So I thought that little piece was pretty heartbreaking when I read it. I was like, man, you could tell by whenever this, I think it was like 97, 98, by this point, you know, he knows it's over, uh, at least for what he knew. Um. So yeah, I won't delve too much. I might find one more little selection here. Oh, but I, I like this piece uh, after what I just read. Cameron Crowe said, beyond being successful money men, which of these gentlemen had a real gut feeling for movies? Uh, that's almost a sleight of hand, almost like they're just money guys and they didn't know movies. It's kind of what I take what he's saying. But Wilder says, Mr. Goldwyn, who was not a brilliant student of language or anything else, knew what was working, what was not working, two or three times in his life. He pawned his wife's jewelry to finish a scene or reshoot a scene that he thought needed it. He could not explain, he could not explain it, what he wanted. But when he saw it, he, uh, where is it? Where'd it go? Oh, but when he saw it, he knew it. Selznick was another producer who was much more versed, much better spoken. He had a trick. Whenever he started a picture, <coughs> sorry about that. Selznick was another producer who was much more versed, much better spoken. He had a trick. Whenever he started a picture, after God knows how many hundreds of notes had been written to the writers, back and forth, back and forth, he had two or three or sometimes even four directors start a picture. Then he had somebody entirely different finish it, so that there was never any director's picture. It was always Selznick's picture. So he just give you some insight into those old uh, studio heads who, I think by most accounts, people would, would rather have than today's studio executives who are hardly that, but they're more money, man. I would say today than they were back then. Those guys actually kind of liked this whole business and they wanted to keep it in movies. But that's just small pieces that are in Conversations with Wilder uh, by Cameron Crowe. And I really can't wait to look through this. Just for the pictures alone, I mean, I wish you could see it. It's so extensive. It's so extensive. And he's talking about all of his movies, uh, like some like it hiding Ace in a Hole and uh, they got pictures of him with actors like Marlene Dietrich, and uh, it's it's just it's a beautiful book. I I'm so happy I have it now, and I can't wait to dive in. But anyway, those are my four books that I've gotten. I have another one coming on Walter Merch that hasn't gotten here yet, and I'm looking at Hitchcock Truefold because I've heard a lot about it, so I might need to 
dive into that one as well. But yeah, that's my book portion of the pod. And now we will jump to the video portion of the pod. All right, we're back. Now, let's jump into local script, man. Like I said, he has a new video out from a few days ago. <clears throat> and we're going to dive into this and another one. This is only three minutes and 43 seconds, so not that long. But you go to local script, man, on YouTube, and you'll see story logic with the equal cancel sign, real logic. So story logic does not equal real logic. It says randomness has rules. Okay, I don't know what's going on here. My thing started acting crazy. Let's see here. Okay, back on it. <clears throat> All right. Story logic does not equal real logic from local script man on YouTube. Got an ad. Let me start this up. Okay. I'm at zero. Let me see if he has a description here. He does not, so we can jump right in. All right, three, two, one, go. So I used to say characters aren't people. That was like my whole thing. Characters aren't people. I'm so smart. But then I started learning about people, and the stuff I was learning became the basis for how I did character work. So it got me thinking, what point was I actually trying to make? What's the real difference between characters and people? Characters aren't actual humans, obviously, but we create them such that they fall into human patterns. And when they don't, we say that's poor characterization or that's inconsistent. So human is clearly the bar. But then it hit me. The difference isn't characters versus people, but the worlds they exist in. The alleged real world that we live in is random and chaotic. People get diseases out of the blue, accidents happen, flukes of good luck happen, scratch-offs, chance encounters, all that jazz. But the randomness of this world is not always convenient for the stories that writers want to tell. I mean, when a protagonist solves a problem through a random coincidence, it's like, hey, aren't they supposed to earn that victory? But things like that happen. It's not impossible. Hell, it might even be realistic. Except the issue had nothing to do with whether or not it was believable. The issue was that it didn't serve the characters. You can't build a character up through their choices and growth only for their ultimate fate to hinge on chance. There's a huge disconnect, but then why does this moment work? It's because Regina George gets hit by the bus after she has already been defeated on a character level. She's at her lowest, and the bus is just an extension of that. This moment would not have worked here, 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 or here. It only works here, at the precise moment where the story allows for it. It's a cosmetic choice that accentuates an already functional story. So story logic is basically karma. Story logic is having two outlaws in a Wild West duel, and Cowboy 1 wins because he's overcome his internal demons while Cowboy 2 hasn't. As someone who has been in many duels, I can assure you that that's not how duels actually work. But you're allowed to give characters what they deserve as long as they earn that outcome through their choices and development. Now, I do think it's ideal to have a plot component in there, too. Like, Cowboy 1 winning because he overcame his demons is fine. But imagine this. Imagine if you had a scene way back in the first act where the spirit of the saloon told Cowboy One, Listen here, kid. A man who hasn't done right by his soul, his hands are gonna be real shaky. And then in the final duel, Cowboy Two's hands are shaking, but Cowboy One's hands aren't, and that's why he wins. That's story logic. Does not being right with your soul actually cause your hands to shake in a gunfight? No, but it doesn't matter. We custom-built our own rules, and we adhered to them. And so the payoff works. It reminds me of my life back before I did YouTube full-time. I had a job as an instructional technologist, making educational digital stuff. And for this job, I had to learn how to code in JavaScript. I hated it, but in JavaScript, you have to declare variables. That means you have to tell the computer what things are going to be important in your code. When I was writing practice code, I would tell my computer that the variable asphalt was important. And since I told my computer that Asphart was important and I gave Asphart a specific value, the computer had to acknowledge the importance of Asphart. Asphart could very well be the <laughs> defining variable in a mountain of code. And as long as the importance of Asphart was consistent and I didn't contradict myself, the code wouldn't have any errors. So it seems like characters are held to the standard of humans, but the world they live in is only held to the standard of self-consistency. <laughs> Thank you.
Let me go back to the end there real quick. Sorry, my remote was acting crazy. The code wouldn't have any errors. So it seems like characters are held to the standard of humans, but the world they live in is only held to the standard of self-consistency. And that's the video basically saying he used to say uh characters are people which you got from aaron sorkin they're not real people so you can put into them whatever you want and they can do whatever you want if they don't have to act like people do because they're not real people and though life is very uh random and a lot of things happen uh you have and sometimes you can't explain why uh movies can't operate like that because it's a narrative form it's a narrative structure. And it's a, it's an art form. So that kind of chaoticness comes across as uh, lazy and easy writing. Um, and he was like, what am I really trying to say by saying characters aren't people? What he found out is uh, movie logic is not real logic, where real logic is oftentimes illogical because of how random life can be. Story logic can't be that random unless you set it up beforehand in the world that yes random things can happen but they don't mean they should always happen you still have to allow this narrative to run its course uh randomness for the sake of randomness will do nothing but leave the audience either confused or frustrated and annoyed and uh, that's why i said story logic is not the same as real logic you have to set rules in your stories because that's part of a narrative i know somebody will say well, who says? Nobody. Uh, you could do, remember you could do what you want, but will it be a success for the people? Well, like William Goldman says, nobody knows anything, so we don't know what's going to be a success or not. Um, but we do have techniques that we have seen work in the past, and so we try to apply them to future techniques. Um, but again, you never know what can work and what won't. But I like that little video by Local Script Man. So let's dive into a longer video by him. One that I have not finished, but it'll be good to look into it uh, right now. Actually, I'm going to go to the other one. The Illusion of Bad Pacing, Why Your Writing Feels Off. Pacing isn't real. This is from Local Script Man. So we're going to dive into this one about seven minutes long. I got an ad, obviously. All right. We're at zero, zero. Like I said, the illusion of bad pacing, why your writing feels off from local script man, and no description. So let's dive in. Three, two, one, go. Before a consulting session, I always ask my client what they think the problems are with the story. But I don't ask this question because I need help identifying problems. I can do that just fine on my own. I ask because I want to know what sort of person I'm dealing with. About a third of these clients will point out specific contradictions and dots that need to be connected. I really want her to be at the house for this scene, but she's at the pool, so I need to find a way to get her from the house to the pool. And then there's another third that says, I don't know what's wrong with it. That's why I'm bringing it to you, dumbass. Which, uh, fair enough, that is my job. But the last third is the group that I find the most interesting. Because when I ask these people what they think the problems are, I get a bullet-pointed list of the same exact words every single time. Tone, flow, energy, and of course, pacing. And before I even read it, I know this thing is about to have some serious structural problems. Pacing has been my most requested video topic for a while now, and I've been putting it off because I know that some of you are not going to like what I have to say. But here's what I believe. Bad pacing is not a problem. It is a symptom of a problem. Your bad pacing is a fever, and you're looking for an ice pack. You want me to be like, hey, here's a technique you can implement to fix your pacing. Just do X, Y, and Z, and your writing won't be boring anymore. But an ice pack is not going to get rid of your fever. You need some antibiotics. Stop treating the symptom and start treating the problem. Weak storytelling. If someone is critiquing your work and they tell you that they don't like the pacing, you should pay attention to that. That person is using their limited tools to say, hey, I think this thing has a problem. But then it's your job to figure out what the problem is. Don't just be like, oh, here, copy, pacing. Thank you so much. Interrogate them a little bit. Like, hey, when you said that you didn't like the pacing, were you referring to 
any particular part of the story. Yeah, it was a little slow at the end with the battle. Oh, good, good. Thank you. The first clue. So you start coming through your third act. The battle's a bit long, is an amateurish and unfocused note. So you need to translate that feedback into something actionable. You go through every scene in the target area and you realize that your final confrontation contains scenes that only exist to reiterate information. You also spot a leftover scene from an earlier draft that no longer serves the function you originally intended it to, which is basically a filler scene. And you find an entire exchange of dialogue in which nothing meaningful is being communicated. And that amalgamation of things translates into what feels like a sluggish third act. I realized that I got through the whole video and I forgot to mention the phenomenon of a thing that feels like it's too fast. I think those do account for a very small fraction of so-called pacing errors. But if a thing feels like it's too quickly paced, I think my go-to solution would be make sure that things are not being lumped together that deserve their own individual moments. Like maybe your big reconciliation between the two friends shouldn't happen at the same time as, you know, defeating the big bad guy. Maybe, maybe they need two different beats. Efficiency is awesome. Efficiency will get you so far, but you're also pursuing truth and meaning. And it is possible that your scenes could be stepping on each other's toes, so to speak. There's no exact objective point at which it could be said this is happening in your story. You kind of just have to play it by ear. And the other thing that I believe contributes to the illusion of fast pacing is a lack of falling action. You really, really, really need time to check in with all of your characters, all of your plot lines, all of your dynamics after the thing has concluded to say, hey, how you doing now? How you doing now? After all that shit, how are you feeling right now? What'd you learn from this, you know? That's a big one. So you fix the problems and suddenly people stop telling you that you have bad pacing. Fancy that. It's almost like pacing is an audience word and not a writer word. I think 99% of so-called pacing problems can be solved by making sure that every scene, every line even, serves a purpose with regard to character, plot, or theme. But there is the other 1%. Maybe you have a long, drawn-out scene that's deeply meaningful and nothing can be cut. It's all exactly where it needs to be. No repeated information, no superfluous details, but everybody still tells you that the scene is too long. Well, to that, my response would be too fucking bad. This isn't about them. You ran the tests, you made your story 100% functional. It's working super well. Don't you dare compromise it on account of somebody else's attention span. Have a spine. By all means, entertain criticism, respect criticism, grow from criticism, but stand up for your decisions as an artist. You can't let a completely subjective note get under your skin. And on the other hand, if you're the one giving the notes, try not to cite your own feelings. Engage with the text. Give them something they can use. Don't just bitch about the symptom. Find the disease. And if you can't, acknowledge that you're not seeing the whole picture. I think there might be a problem in the third act. I'm not sure what it is. All I know is that it feels a little slow. Maybe there's a scene or two that doesn't belong. Maybe you're paying off things that you never properly set up, so that's why those payoffs feel like filler. Maybe you're stretching the scene out for entertainment value when everything important about it could have been said in half a page. Just anything but der pacing bad. Like, you see what I mean, right? That's, that's a nothing critique. And I feel the same way about tone. Funny, serious, scary, lighthearted, somber. These are all audience words. Words to describe the feelings of the viewer. Are your characters behaving in character? Is your plot unfolding naturally without contradictions? Yes. Then you're golden. You got it right. And if people find it amusing, great. And if people find it disturbing, also great. What matters is that you told the story you wanted to tell. You reflected the human condition precisely in the manner you set out to. And you did a great job. Now go, 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 go do it, go. Get it done. I believe in you. I love you.
that one. Like the video a lot. All right, coming back to our last one: stop consuming media. The screenwriter's hot takes on product on productivity. After this, all right. Coming back to wrap it up. This is the longest video we're gonna watch today. A screenwriter's hot takes on productivity. Stop consuming media by local script man. It's been a whole local script man day. I started this video, didn't finish it. So we're going to restart it. And I'm going to be basically watching this thing with y'all for the first time. So that's exciting. Four. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. I think. Let me see the description. He doesn't have one. Um, Let's see here. But I already agree with with the sentiment. It's something that I've already started to do. So I agree. But let's dive in. Again, this is Local Script Man, a screenwriter's hot takes on productivity. I think every creative has an ideal level of media consumption that's best for them. We have to take in new inspiration. It's a need for us. It's like food. But the thing about food is it matters what you eat and how much you eat and how varied your diet is. Don't let media consumption become a vice you fall back on that makes you feel guilty and lazy. You come home at the end of the day, you're exhausted, you know you don't have the brain power to work, you need to relax and entertain yourself, and that's okay. But when it comes time for downtime, there are two different approaches. Approach number one, you put on some comfort show you've seen a hundred times, but you don't even watch it. You pull up Discord, you start chatting, you got phone, Instagram reels, scrolling, you see your friends hanging out, guilt, 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 I'm so lazy, I'm so stupid, guilt, not even watching the screen, not even watching this, not even doing that, not engaged in nothing, and after a couple hours, you get that sick internet feeling, but you can't look away, it's just tunnel vision, media, media, black hole, nothingness, death, you feel better now, you feel rested, of course you don't. I used to do this, okay? And once in a while, I still find myself doing it. But I vastly prefer approach number two. Approach number two is you make yourself a nice cup of coffee or tea, and you sit down, you get all cozy, and you say, I'm going to watch that movie I've been planning to watch. And I'm not going to look at my phone. And I'm not going to do other stuff. I am watching a movie right now. I am in control. I am making a conscious choice. This is how I, an autonomous being, am choosing to spend the next two hours of my life. And I'm going to relax, and I'm going to recharge, and I'm just going to let something else take this brain off my hands for a while. And when it's over, you don't feel gross. You don't feel like a worthless internet slug who just wasted an evening doing nothing. You feel like a human being. You feel healthy and rejuvenated. And you cannot tell me that approach number two isn't an option, but approach number one is... If you're lucky enough to have two free hours and a Netflix subscription, you are capable of both. To return to the food analogy, the salad costs the same as the burger. But what if you want to get ripped? What if you're putting in work on a creative project and you want your consumption to not only be rejuvenating, but productive? Well, I think this one's obvious. Don't sit around and wait for your consumption choices to inspire your project. Allow your project to inspire your consumption choices. That way you still get to enjoy the pleasures of media, but in a way that fuels what I assume is your main goal, your project thingy. I was writing a video about romantic relationships and writing. I read The Fault in Our Stars. I'd never read it before. It was pretty good. I got to read a good book and I got inspiration for my project. My consumption was productive. And I know I sound like a hustle bro, But unless you're some time lord, you and I have the same 24 hours. You probably spend eight hours resting, another eight hours working to get by. That leaves eight free hours, which is extremely charitable. It's probably more like four. And you're watching a 700-episode anime that you've already seen before? I'm sorry, I'm not judging you. I'm just pointing out the obvious reality of your situation. You're shoveling down comfort media, you're not getting all your vitamins, and you think you're going to have a creative breakthrough? Look, here's a good rule of thumb I use to determine if I should rewatch something. 
I ask myself, have I extracted all of the inspiration I can from this? Am I going to experience it through a new lens and gain new insights? Or do I know exactly what to expect? And if it's the latter, consider the possibility that maybe it's not worth your precious hours. I know, I'm being a dick. Because I get it. I've seen my favorite film twice. And I don't watch clips of it on YouTube. I refuse to. If I'm going to watch it, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to fully engage with the art. And that doesn't mean I'm going to spend my energy analyzing it. It just means I'm going to open myself up to it, give it my full attention, and let it in. This is part of the reason I love movie theaters, because they constitute an environment where the film is the sole focus of everyone in the room. It's the same reason I use Panera as an office. This is a space solely for work. I'm using geography to tell my brain what mode to be in. I never work in my bedroom, ever, because that's where I sleep. That is the space for sleeping. And I see some of these dudes with bed, desk, TV, gaming PC, mini fridge, all in one room, and they're wondering why they can't focus. Like, gee, I wonder why your wires are getting a little crossed in the room where you do literally everything. Especially to my ADHD gang, the last thing you guys need is a hyper-accessible Nick Fury display of everything in your life. Go to the park. Walk around. Brainstorm. If you have an idea, write it on a notepad. Not the notes app. That's on your phone. And your phone is where TikTok is. Use a physical piece of paper. It's the one piece of Tarantino advice that's actually stuck with me. Outsource your focus to external pressures. Okay, now I'm gonna make fun of the pantsers again. I'm sorry, guys. Um, this. So he says, pantsers, aka gardeners, people who start writing with no preparation and solve their story problems via revisions, planners, aka plotters, aka architects, people who figure out everything in advance. These constitute the ends of a spectrum, which we all fall somewhere on. This is for your own good. See, in my brain, writing has two stages. The first stage is the canon stage. You're figuring out all the characters, what they want, what they need, what they do, the plot lines, how everything weaves together, every single scene, all in this big, soulless Wikipedia article of perfect, coherent information. My channel is basically all about getting through that stage. But then the second stage is execution, where you take that canon and you turn it into art or just the deliverable. You actually type out the screenplay or whatever. You make it resonant, you make it engaging, you make it stylish, all that good stuff. But to the most extreme pants or gardeners on the outlying spectrum, these two stages are the same thing. They're laying the tracks as they go, which to me is insane. Several months ago in this video, I challenged the pantsers to explain what they felt were the advantages of just winging it. And I got a piss load of comments. The whole thing was really enlightening, but there were a few common through lines to the Panzer's answers. A lot of them seemed to think that structuring the story would lead to stilted, forced characters. Because what if you plan for one event to happen, but the characters just don't want to do that? Then you're forcing it. This one doesn't make sense to me, because if you plan hard enough, then the seeds for that thing are planted way back in the beginning, right? I feel like most of the alleged problems with planning can be solved with more planning. But there's also the emotional component. Some writers feel that planning just sucks the joy and inspiration out of writing. And I agree. But I have so much fun creating an airtight outline that I don't mind the actual script just being a chore. Clearly, though, we're dealing with different types of brains, and I can respect that. Whatever. Do your thing. But this is a video about productivity. How to get the job done in the time that you have. So purely from a productivity standpoint, I'm going to stand by the way I do things. If you think you're ready to open up that blank final draft document and actually write a first draft, ask yourself this. Do you know what happens in every scene? What order are those scenes in for features? Are there at least 60? That's about the lowest number you can get away with. Do you have clear act breaks? Those aren't a must, but I never feel that I'm ready unless I have a clear understanding of the major movements of the story. Are there any huge holes you haven't patched yet, but you just tell yourself, oh, that you're ready because you're not. The problem might go deeper than you think. You don't want to bake your problem into the story and then realize you can't rip it out without destroying the whole pie. 
Solve it now before you waste two weeks writing your draft. You're not ready. I'm telling you, I've done it. I've done it so many times. And this is why structure matters to me. Without frameworks, without theories, without tools, whatever you want to call them, you have nothing but your instincts. And most people, myself included, don't have powerful enough instincts. If we want to operate in the professional world, if we want to work with anything remotely close to efficiency, we need a plan. Okay, let's talk about collaboration. You will probably run out of steam and you'll probably need a creative partner. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Seek out a partner who complements your style. I'm a hyper-efficiency marketing dude who's very good at problem solving, but not very good at organic idea generation. So I know that the type of partner I need is a scatterbrained auteur overflowing with what ifs and wouldn't it be cools. But if that's you, maybe you need someone like me. As for how you find a partner, well, maybe the internet isn't all bad, but take initiative. You won't find your creative soulmate on the first try. To keep DMing people, you're gonna find someone. If you go to school, look for the other writers in your community, form a writer's room. If you internalize this idea of the lone wolf genius writer who locks themselves in a room for years to complete their masterpiece, you're gonna get really discouraged when your brain stops braining. But you don't have to do this alone. Maybe the breakthrough you're looking for is gonna come from someone else. Accept that. If your project is some super embarrassing secret thing you're not ready to show anyone, suck it up. You gotta fight through that anxiety. Besides, they're all gonna see it eventually, right? Finally, all of this comes with the caveat that with creative work, sometimes you will be waiting a long time for the missing piece to pop into your brain. I have no strategy for brainstorming other than to actually do it. Like, set aside time to pace and think. New ideas are like vampires. You gotta invite them in. That's all for today. Just a little vloggy vlog type video. Sometimes my ideas are aided by goofy and paint illustrations, and sometimes my ideas are very general and visualizing them only leads to clutter. This video is one of those. I still like to hear people's thoughts on the plotter pantser spectrum, specifically if you're a natural architect who found the value of Gartner, because that's a leap I never see. But the next video is going to be about axe structures, it's going to be a cool one, and then beekeeper movie. Shout out the patrons, shout out the ceaseless march of time for filling me with purpose, showing me that my life is finite and that I mustn't waste my precious years on this earth, and shout out the peanut butter pretzel bites from Kroger. Y'all, thanks for watching, and remember to subscribe. Now it's laser time. It's the end of that video. I want to go back <clears throat> to a little piece really quick if I can. Oh, and your phone is where TikTok is. Use a physical... Let's see here. This part was key, and I was kind of zoning out, so I want to go back and hear it. My energy analyzing it. It just means I'm going to open myself up to it, give it my full attention, and let it in. This is part of the reason I love movie theaters, because they constitute an environment where the film is the sole focus of everyone in the room. It's the same reason I use Panera as an office. This is a space solely for work. I'm using geography to tell my brain what mode to be in. I never work in my bedroom, ever, because that's where I sleep. That is the space for sleeping. And I see some of these dudes with bed, desk, TV, gaming PC, mini fridge, all in one room, and they're wondering why they can't focus. Like, gee, I wonder why your wires are getting a little crossed in the room where you do literally everything. Especially to my ADHD gang, the last thing you guys need is a hyper-accessible Nick Fury display of everything in your life. Go to the park. Walk around. Brainstorm. If you have an idea, write it on a notepad. Not the notes app. That's on your phone. And your phone is where TikTok is. Use a physical piece of paper. It's the one piece of Tarantino advice that's actually stuck with me. Outsource your focus. Oh, I got an ad. I didn't have an ad the whole time. I go back trying to hear it again. I got an ad. The focus to external pressures. Okay, now I'm going to make fun of... Okay. We'll go back just a little bit further. The salad costs the same as the burger. That's a great analogy. You probably spend eight hours resting, another eight hours working to get by. That leaves eight free hours, which is extremely charitable. It's probably more like four, and... 
you're watching a 700 episode anime that you've already seen before. I'm sorry, I'm not judging you. I'm just pointing out the obvious reality of your situation. You're shoveling down comfort media. You're not getting all your vitamins and you think you're going to have a creative breakthrough. Look, here's a good rule of thumb I use to determine if I should rewatch something. I ask myself, have I extracted all of the inspiration I can from this? Am I going to experience it through a new lens and gain new insights? Or do I know exactly what to expect? And if it's the latter, consider the possibility that maybe it's not worth your precious hours. I know, I'm being a dick. It's because I get it. I've seen my favorite film twice, and I don't watch clips of it on YouTube. I refuse to. If I'm going to watch it, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to fully engage with the art. And that doesn't mean I'm going to spend my energy analyzing it. It just means I'm going to open myself up to it, give it my full attention, and let it in. This is part of the reason I love movie theaters, because they constitute an environment where the film is the sole focus of everyone in the room. Agree. It's the same reason I use Panera as an office. This is a space solely for work. I'm using geography to tell my brain what mode to be in. I never work in my bedroom. Yeah, wow. He has great points in this. In my brain, writing has two Let me see here. external pressures. Okay. Use a physical... Make fun of the Panthers again. So Panthers, Gardeners, Planets, Plotters. This is so key because um, I've tried both. And like you said, these constitute the ends of a spectrum, which we all fall somewhere on. I've tried to just write stuff with no ideas. Found I get bogged down pretty quickly, but I have made it all the way through. Go back and read it, and it's plenty of fluff. Then I've done things where I've planned it out. Architecture. Wrote out characters. Wrote out story beats. Wrote out everything. And I found it's much more uh, effective for me if I write everything out and figure everything out in advance. And then by the time I'm writing, I know everything that's going to happen. Doesn't mean stuff can't change. And off the time you get these Eureka moments and then you add it in, take stuff out, but you know where you're going. And as a writer, I just think that's, I think that's so necessary because you will find yourself bogged down quickly. If you don't know where you're going, in my opinion. I'm sorry, guys. Um, this is for your own good. See, in my brain, writing has... He says, I'm an extreme planner type. The first stage... But we already heard all this. Remember to subscribe. Now it's laser time. Thank you, local script man. Thank you for the media uh, <clears throat> analysis and whatnot. He has a lot of videos like that. He's a really talented guy. I really love what he's doing. I mean, I agree with that. Stop consuming media. Uh I don't watch a lot of stuff now. I don't watch a lot of TV. Don't watch a lot of movies. Oftentimes, I'm actually doing the opposite of what he's saying because I'll just put on that 70s show if it's on or if Babylon is on or if Licorice Pizza is on or I watch a lot of sports. Uh, football season's coming to an end, so that's going to be gone after the Super Bowl in two weeks or a little less than two weeks. Uh, basketball is going to start ramping up. Uh, not really going to take that seriously into the playoffs. So a lot of the time now, I'm either writing something Watching a movie that I already like or something like that. And I do have movies I need to watch. I need to see Ace in the Hole. I put like four movies right by my TV to say, those are the ones you need to watch. Movies you haven't seen. And I'll be honest, it is hard to do. You just often want to do something that you see. But I agree with him. We can't, we have to watch what we consume, the type of media we consume, and how much of it we consume. Especially if you're trying to be in a creative space. You don't want all of these things in your mind when you're writing. Because you'll find out quickly it won't be yours. And I don't agree with that sentiment that everything is done and, and nothing's original. You can find originality. There are still things to tell that haven't been told before. But if you're watching everything that's coming out now, you're going to be inundated with those type of things. And I will, and I'll argue most of today isn't something you should want in your mind anyway because most of it is trash. That's just my opinion. Now, older stuff, it's a different story. Uh, personally, but you shouldn't watch too much of that either. I just, I agree with his overall sentiment. Don't co stop consuming media, especially if you're trying to make your own. Uh, I just think you'd be better off for it. And it, it's worked for me. As I find myself pulling back from watching things or too much of things, I find ideas come very quickly. And uh, I am an ideas person. I do think that I naturally can come up with ideas but i will say most of that is just from living and traveling 
uh, since I've been to Gatlinburg these last few years, which you guys know about. I've been doing it every year since like 2018. And it's changed my view, changed where I want to live in the world, changed my ideas about things and, you know, living in mountains and things of that nature. It's opened up in my writing, too, because now I have a new uh, point of view or perspective. But anyway, we've already gone long enough. Like I said, thank you to Local Script Man for giving us plenty of stuff to talk about. All my books, uh, everything. I hope you hope you're having a great week. Uh, January is over, and if whatever you didn't do in January that you want to do, hey, you now have February to do it. And it's a leap year, so you get an extra day. So that's just one more day to do what you want to do, and that goes for me as well. So thank you all for listening as always. And yeah. That's all I got. Thank you all for listening. See you next time. Peace out.